You're listening to Plants in Place, a four-part ecology and ethnobotany podcast produced by Groundwork. I'm Riley Lopez. Groundwork is a Colorado nonprofit. We offer educational programs in Western Colorado focused on deepening people's relationships with the places they call home. We teach about seed keeping, ecology, the Colorado River, and relocalizing culture. This podcast series is a four-part introduction to a few topics related to ecology and ethnobotany. If you're interested to learn more in a hands-on setting, Groundwork offers courses on human ecologies of Colorado for all ages. The program set up a base camp in national forests of western Colorado, spending days exploring the ecoregion and learning to understand people's relationships with plants. Registration information for upcoming ecology programs is available on Groundwork's website at layinggroundwork.org. There you'll find information on our instructors and dates for upcoming programs ranging in length from a long weekend to a full week. These podcasts are made available without a paywall. In accessing this podcast episode, we ask you to consider a form of exchange. We do accept donations to support our work. And we also encourage you to consider other forms of exchange, too. Please share about our work here. Take an action that gives back to the earth, including singing your song or spending time tending the earth. This ethnobotany talk series was designed by Gabe Crawford. Gabe is a naturalist and ethnobotanist working on experimental archaeology projects throughout the Intermountain West, tracking the parallel lives of people and plants, by locating semi-wild patches of biscuit roots and other carrot family plants in the tablelands of Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, and Wyoming. Born and raised in Colorado, Gabe has devoted his life to the pursuit of place-based living. From his studies with many teachers, Gabe has become a renowned teacher on tending semi-wild food plants. He is dedicated to decolonizing modern people's views of the ecosystems they are part of, bringing traditional foods back into more common use, and breaking down the mental divide between the cultivated and the wild. Welcome to the second episode. This recording is about deconstructing invasion biology. In this part of the talk series, Gabe offers a critique of unscientific biases towards invasive species and how invasion biology affects people's relationship with plants and place. In this recording, discussed are figures like Charles Elton, Daniel Simberloff, and E.O. Wilson, some of the most influential people in how we relate to invasive species today. We also discuss disturbance and disturbance regimes and look into humans' emotive wartime language used to describe plants. This talk was recorded live from Groundworks Home on our working educational seed farm, which resides on the ancestral homelands of the Nuchu or Ute people. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, Like I said, and like Jeff said, we're really looking at cultural stuff here. And this conversation is really more about unpacking cultural baggage because science is influenced by the demands of culture and they co-influence each other, science and culture, you know? And what this is really all about in talking about invasion biology is dissecting really just the scientific shortcomings in a very young field of science, because what do you need in science to make good predictions and make good, like, basically assertions around the world? You need reference, and reference takes time. And invasion biology hasn't even been around for, like, 
100 years. And the data that we have collectively to draw from, not even 100 years, you know. But, and we're making these massive generalizations that are becoming, that people kind of cling to and they become these ideologies and then they become dogmatic. And then that's why, you know, we already live in like a super hyped up political climate right now. And this like topic, when you're talking about invasive species, it gets, it gets heated. If you want to piss some people off, go to like California Native Plant Society Facebook page and be like, I love Russian olive. You know, you have people running at you with their digital pick forks and sickles and stuff. You know, it's, it's like real. But a big part of my work is history, you know, and that's like ethnobotany. When you really want to dive into that whole world, you're, you're diving into history because you need context. Because like in order to have like a meaningful relationship to place and to who you are in relationship to a place, like you need to have some sense of historical context. And then like when you want to understand how these other fields of science relate to this, having some historical context of these fields is really important. And the history of invasion biology goes really deep. It's actually, you know, my, my, this professor from the uh, University of Arizona, he's their ecology professor, his name is Matthew Chu. I interviewed him about this once. And he said that like, when he did his whole dissertation on basically just picking apart the scientific shortcomings of invasion biology and did like a whole 300 page thing on it called uh, Preludes to Elton and Charles Elton is basically who people call the father of invasion biology. But what he found is that it went back to the 1600s, you know, where people think that invasion biology began with Elton. He started his whole dissertation researching that, and then it became something, as it usually does, that he didn't expect it to become. And then he ended with where he started would begin, you know, and it really is a cultural adventure that takes us into just like all these layers of colonization and like the whole colonial history of Europe expanding across the world and moving plants across the world in this whole empire building episode of the world, right? That we are still living, we're still living in. And that's the thing about like looking at history through this perspective. It's like, no, that, I mean, that happened a hundred years ago, but it's today, you know, we are, we are like products of this, our culture and our, our life ways and our mentalities are still very much influenced by these cultural historical things. But to bring it all back because we only have less than an hour. Um, who is Charles Elton? Charles Elton was from England. He was a big deal in kind of like the animal ecology world. He wrote a book called The Ecology of Animal and Plant Invasions in 1958, and it got no attention until about 1980s sometime. And I don't, I mean, those of you who are around in the 90s, if you remember like, when invasion biology like took off like a rocket. It was in the 1990s, you know, where people were like, I'm feeling this. And they like got on the train and it became like this huge, this huge movement. And that's when the Clinton administration created the National Invasive Species Act, you know, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. But it all started in this episode with Charles Elton. And one of the cultural things I want to unpack in this whole history with invasion biology is language. Because if you really take a kind of like take a step back and, and listen to the language that people use in this field of science, it's probably one of the least scientific, emotive, non-neutral wartime languages that exists in all of science. And when I was talking to Matt Chu about that, he, he actually said that it goes as far back as Darwin, when Darwin was being escorted on a military ship. And I think he went, was in 
somewhere in South America, and he was on this, on this place, but he said, like, this whole place has been invaded by thistles, you know, and, like, invasion, right, this language, like, invasion, what is invasion? Anybody, like, real quick, like, what do you think of when you think of invasion? Take over. But, like, who, what does invasion as a concept in human culture come from? It's war. The context that invasion happens in, it's like, it's, it's war strategy. It's intent. You know, like, when you're invading another country, you have intent. And, like, your intent is to occupy through violence. You know, like, that is the thing where, according to Matt, he's like, the concept of, of biology and the concept of invasion are so incompatible in my brain because, like, even, like, an invasive, and then the word invasive and the word species, they just, like, do not make sense, like, from my perspective as, like, a historian and somebody who pays attention to language because, like, invasion is all about war. And then, so, in science, there's this big thing of, like, hey, don't anthropomorphize plants and animals. But then kind of baked into the cake of this whole field of science, it, it is the most anthropomorphized, least neutral language you could possibly pick. And it uses emotive language that is based purely on culturally subjective value judgments, you know. And that's fine with me. I don't care. I just don't, I just care when people call it science. Like, that's really what I want to call out here. It's like, you, you can think whatever you want about, like, who you think should or shouldn't be somewhere, but there actually is no scientific absolute of what should be where according to some like historical baseline that can be moved at any time. And there actually is no real data or proof for what these ecosystems were like at a certain time. Like it's impossible to actually know. And the only historical data we have is like the settlers journals and like these explorers journals. These journals don't have floras and faunas in them to like actually they never cataloged these ecosystems in that way. So we don't know. So when we're trying to restore stuff, like we're actually going off of some like historical baseline that is actually, it's, it can be really arbitrary, you know? So wrapping back around Elton, he was in World War II. And this is why I bring it back to war. He was in charge of eradicating mice and rats to protect Britain's food storage, rations in, in the war. So in his book, um, The Ecology of Invasions by Animals and Plants, talks about, like, explosions and blah, blah, blah. you know, he, like, uses a lot of this wartime language. But not, actually, I think, like, only twice in the book did he ever mention anything about, like, invasions being problematic. At the end of his book, he actually talked about how, like, this is an inevitable human thing that happens. And he was in cahoots with Aldo Leopold. They were actually close friends. They both had this thing of, like, aesthetics, practicality, and one other thing that I can't really remember, but, like, he actually never said anything against invasive species. He's just like, this is an ine inevitable thing that happens with or without humans, but we've just sped it up. And he's like, ultimately, like, it's actually just how it is, and that's okay. And as we tend to do with things that people say, they kind of veer off course from, like, what they originally meant, and then a lot of what they said actually, like, completely gets lost. And this is what I've learned through like reading a lot of academic papers and like following paper trails on these reference on like the references of papers is that I really think most people that like cite stuff don't read past the abstract and conclusion of what they're citing 
a lot of them probably don't even read the abstract because there is a tradition in academia of citation to get past the first layer of peer review. The peer review people will go through and just see who you're citing without even like looking any further into that. And it's basically just making sure you're raising your hand and saying, I'm in this club in academia, you know? So that's a big part of this talk is like, I, I'm not, I believe in science. I really do. I like science. And I also just want to say science is a human endeavor it's impossible to bypass bias, you know? And I think that as long as you can just like come to terms with that, just see that and do your own research and take stuff with a grain of salt. And like, just, you have a few tools to realize like, yeah, the peer review is a great thing, but it also has its holes in it. And I'm gonna get into a couple of these holes right now. So Elton, you know, he was in the war. He was a really cool dude. He wrote this book. And then this book got another edition published semi-recently where the guy who's now the godfather of invasion biology, his name is Daniel Simberloff, University of Tennessee. He was just like, don't pay attention to what he's saying in the end of the book. Pay attention to this, this, and this, because Daniel Simberloff is just like, uh-uh. You know, he like really does not like introduced species at all. And he makes some pretty complicated, intricate cases for why, but he doesn't give any ground. So at that time, to rewind a little bit, uh, E.O. Wilson, everybody, anybody heard of E.O. Wilson? He was one of Charles Elton's students. And E.O. Wilson is probably one of the most influential people in how we relate to invasive species today. And this is why, because who, raise your hand if you've ever heard that th saying like invasive species are the second greatest threat to biodiversity on the planet. Have you ever heard that? Okay, well that's a saying, you know, and you hear it a lot, especially if you're hanging out in like conservation world, forest service folks like this. It's like a religious slogan that came from homeboy right here. He said that. And he said that because he was good friends with some freshwater fish biologists that through anecdote and observation with not like a single piece of actual data made this claim. Like, yeah, we think that like they, it made, they made this claim through the medium of freshwater fish biology, just with the species that they were observing. They were just like, we think that these species are being extremely threatened by these introduced species. So E.O. Wilson said in a piece that he wrote that introduced species are the greatest threat, second greatest threat to biodiversity and to introduced species or into species imperiled. And because of who he was at the time that nobody thought to fact check it because they're like, oh, yeah, it's E.O. Wilson. Like, duh, you know, and then it just stuck. And this has been one of the central things that in the peer review process, you know, we think of the peer review like it's like this really like, oh, it's peer reviewed. It's got to be true, you know. But when you really look at like how these things come into the peer review, you're like, no, it has its holes. And this is a big one because a lot of these claims that have been made in invasion biology actually never got tested, not even a little bit. They were just said once, purely anecdotal by well-informed and well-meaning individuals, but it just stuck and it's still there. And it's already been proven wrong multiple times by a lot of other university ecologists, but it's still there. It's still like what people learn when they're working for conservation organizations. And then the whole language of like how we, the whole language that we use around these plants, it's not neutral. It, it's, it's wartime language and it doesn't really make sense. And I think it's a really big thing to like, how do we create better language around this? You know, because it's like, I don't, I don't want to call, I don't have a better word sometimes, but I just say invasive species. But that's like, I've, I lost faith in that concept a long time ago. 
and I really don't even yeah I don't I don't know what else to call him sometimes and then so like going back even further there was a guy named uh, oh hold on there was uh, John Henslow was a botanist and a doctor and a lawyer in England 1840s 50s he was really wealthy and being a botanist was like a hobby of his and there was this competition between all these other botanists to like to try to think of like what was here when as a lawyer this is where he started drawing on stuff from like common law native and alien came from english common law from a botanist who was a lawyer and a doctor and he really just was like created these words as labels for plants that were here when just to like be like oh there was a competition between all these other botanists to like try to find as many plants that were established there and not brought there by people and they developed this whole like system of symbols and asterisks and daggers to like label all these plants and that's where we have our terms native and alien from and the term native just meant like something that was already occurring here you know it just didn't it actually didn't have any kind of other meaning to that and alien was plants that were like brought in by people and that stuck and then here we go all the way to now fast forward and it's completely changed so these concepts and these meanings of these words that kind of like were birthed in the early parts of the science in the early days of the science they actually didn't really mean what they mean now and the people that created them didn't intend for them to become that so yeah you see how it's like really common for this stuff to get applied misapplied out of context and that is what i'm like really trying to hone in on here is that a lot of these claims they're misapplied out of context and like you know you get this like big issue with these overgeneralizations ecology is an incredibly complex subject it's infinite you know that's why there's all these sub-disciplines and within ecology because it's life life is complicated we don't really understand it you know angela moles who's a global ecologist at the university of Australia and Sydney told me like people really overestimate what scientists think we know about the world especially with ecology because ecology is it's hard to understand you know and that this thing of like there's a delicate balance in ecology is actually a lot of scientists are being like actually we see that the balance of nature is change you know and that brings us to like what do invasive species supposedly do they supposedly cause harm but is harm, what is harm? Like is harm change? Or is harm all of the money that they cost agricultural companies for like, you know, losses and grains? So that, that's like you have to, when you're sifting through this stuff, you have to be mindful like when they make these claims, oftentimes the harm that they're talking about is economic harm, you know? And, and so yeah, and I'm not, and this is where this conversation gets tricky because this is where I've been told like you obviously don't like native plants and you're like a climate change denier. And it's like, no, it's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that this has become like quite the ism here. This, this is a big ism and I don't like isms. Like when I see isms, I feel the need to, to try to pick them apart a little bit because isms are dangerous. We get stuck in isms and they become militant and they become crazy and like, you know, go surf the Facebook page of the Native Plant Society and you'll see, like, people are, like, hardcore about this. It's all about this whole thing of biodiversity, you know, biodiversity. That's, like, what we value. Biodiversity is our cultural value, you know, and that is what I want to 
bringing attention to is that like it's subjective especially in ecology there's no objective truth to how things ought to be it's culturally subject you know it's preference it's a taboo thing to say but like it, it's it's true in biodiversity or this pre-european landscape which we actually have no real historical data for but it's an idea of what we think it might have looked like is this cultural preference for what we think that we want the place to look like when we try to restore it and as I was reading in the Western Slope, Colorado flora, these botanists were saying that there's never been any such thing as like a Western, as a successful restoration, because it actually is literally impossible to restore an ecosystem back any kind of way it was before. You know, nature is a equal opportunity employer, people. You know, who at first come, first serve. It's lacks and larders when there's larders on the landscape which is like abundance of particular resources whoever shows up first gets that and those can cause these blooms in certain populations that can be native plants it can be introduced plants and the more you learn about invasive species like jargon a lot, there's a lot of native plants that people call invasive species and it's really subjective because they're doing something they don't want them to do and that's all i'm trying to say here you know is this like back off with the militantness and just realize that like it's subjective you know and that you can have your land management goals but like a lot of the time these land management goals aren't really backed by that much actual rigorous science unfortunately you know and so at the center of all this is this like thing of biodiversity that everybody is like biodiversity is the most important thing and there's a funny history to this concept in the term of biodiversity that is really, it's, it's actually impossible to measure biodiversity. So back in the day, there was this guy, his name was Walter Rosen, and he was a biologist that created the term biodiversity. And when he created this term, he said biodiversity as a concept takes the logical out of biological. It's actually doesn't, it's a quality, it's not a quantity, you know, and supposed diversity is something you can quantify, right? And there are in ecology different kinds of diversity. You have your alpha, your beta and your gamma diversities. There's a quantifiable species diversities checklist that you can do. Like alpha is like species richness within a specific ecosystem. Beta is the, sp the species richness between ecosystems. And gamma diversity is like the overall species richness of a whole bioregion. These are like quantifiable concepts that you can actually measure species richness with. Biodiversity doesn't have that. It's a concept and it's a quality. So going back to E.O. Wilson, E.O. Wilson and Walter Rosen had this big convention that they were putting together for conservation to try to like rally the troops to like advocate for land because like, and um, they're like, how do we create something to like catch some traction? You know, we need to create an idea that people can like stand behind, like a narrative, you know, because like people, we're really attached to narratives. We're really attached to these things, you know, that we can, can create a sense of identity with. And that's where the term biodiversity came from. They were like, we need to create something that we can advocate for. Not, it's a quality. So biodiversity, I know this might be confusing. It took me a bit to understand this one and a lot of sifting through papers and a lot of talking to these, some of these scientists, you know. It is a quality, it's not a quantity. So when you hear people talk, just pay attention to how you hear people use the term biodiversity. Because as Matthew Chu said, he's like, it was created in a very non-scientific way, but it just caught traction and it got sucked into the peer review process. It got sucked into academia as this scientific concept. 
that's quantifiable that it wasn't originally created as and it's not you know you have your alpha beta gamma diversities that are quantifiable biodiversity is not quantifiable it's a concept that was created to arouse cultural hyped upness to like stand behind conservation efforts and as somebody who likes history i just think that these things are really important to think about you know because a lot of people times when people like use the term invasive they get behind these things i'm like well, I really am curious, like, what are you actually thinking in your head? What do you actually understand deeply about just, like, where these terms come from and how little sense that they actually make? And so, yeah, that's why we have this problem of overgeneralizations, and I think that that's a thing that all of us will do. You know, it's a human thing to overgeneralize things. Sometimes it's kind of appropriate, but a lot of time it's not. And in ecology, in these scientific fields, especially with invasive species, you know, like they'll have one big cutting edge, like study and survey and test done on something. And then they don't replicate their studies. It just doesn't happen. And because of that, you have one study that said this one thing about this one place, about this one time, at this one time of the year. And they were like, oh, yep, this does that. And then people just make this broad paintbrush stroke across the board that is this massive overgeneralization and people are like well how about that that's how that is you know and it's not really how it is because like just because it happened at one place at one time at one particular time of the year doesn't mean it's true across the whole board because like ecology doesn't work like that it's different everywhere you go and so kind of segueing into the world of conservation the world of conservation that we have now is largely a lot of it we owe to Daniel Samberloff, who I said, he's like kind of like the OG in invasion biology field. He and a couple other people in cahoots wrote this big letter to the Clinton administration in the 90s, you know, and they were like, there's an ecological catastrophe looming right now. You need to do something, you know. So the Clinton administration created the National Invasive Species Act. And the people that helped draft the act were DuPont and Monsanto, you know? And Lockheed Martin, they're a weapons manufacturer. They were also, they were on the, on the board of trustees in the National Invasive Species Council that was created from that act. And so you kind of like start to take a bigger picture, look at like the big business involved in this because like, this is America. We are war makers. Like America is a wartime country, you know, and like that is like the baseline of the, the economy of our country is war. And this was a perfect opportunity to create another war on the war on invasive species, you know, and the big money players in the game were like Monsanto and DuPont, Syngenta, ConAgra, and uh, Lockheed Martin. A lot of the big names that you see on the national board members for the National Invasive Species Council created in the Clinton, by the Clinton administration, you know? So you kind of get an idea of like, who's benefiting from these deals. Now, go a tier lower, the Sierra Club, the Nature Conservancy, these really big, you know, conservation organizations that I like, I'm not gonna deny, like, it's a paradox. They do a lot of good stuff. I'm thankful for conservation because the, the alternative is like, just mass ecocide, which is already happening, but like conservation has helped a lot. But even on their board of trustees, their, their board members on the Sierra Club and the Nature Conservancy, like Monsanto and DuPont are on their board. 
And so what I've learned about conservation and restoration projects is that in order to even do a, a restoration project, you have to have funding because it's a lot of money to do that. And in order to get funding, you have to prove that you're going to do an eradication first. You know, so you have to have somebody that you need, somebody's got to die, basically, when you're, like, wanting to do a restoration. They're like, who are you going to kill? And you're like, oh, I want to kill this Russian olive right here. And they're like, all right, here's, here's a lot of glyphosate. Here's 10,000 gallons of it. Use it well. You know, and then they get the funding for it. And I'm not exaggerating any of this. Like, my sister, she went to college for, like, biology and restoration ecology and like in botany and when she got out she got straight onto like a conservation crew that was going to go and do restoration and they just gave her a backpack sprayer you know and she's like wait i didn't think that this is what this was about and she tried to do it for a couple years until she quit when she like over and over again realized a lot of these restoration projects don't work and that they they use this concept of like we have to come and nuke it first to like plant the stuff and a lot of these different kind of herbicides, they don't really, they make it harder for a lot of these native seeds that they want to plant to germinate. So it's, it's a kind of complicated marriage there, you know. The organizations that are trying to help save the land are in bed with the beasts that are screwing the land at the same time. It's a big conversation. And I, like I said, it's a, hard, it's a hard talk to give in an hour because there's a lot to this. And I haven't even talked about any specific plants yet. I just want to like talk about like this is what this is the cultural baggage behind this field of science. And I think it's worth taking note of. And I think it's worth like reflecting like how you treat plants differently based on what you've been told about them. You know, you're like, oh, that's a native plant. Oh, yes, native plant. Oh, I love you so much. You know, and you like pull some hair and offer some tobacco and you're like, mm, yes, native plant, she'll never touch you, you know, and then you see it like salsify and you're like, no, you introduce plants, plant, eat you, you know? It's a common thing to do. Pay attention to yourself when you do it, you know? Like, I'm not into this stuff, but I've been raised in this culture and I'm like trying to like undo a lot of this stuff in myself. I'm speaking from personal experience and making fun of myself here, but, um, yeah, so like conservation, how we try to restore ecosystems, it's like taking this heirloom china bowl from your grandma's closet and you drop it on the floor and it breaks. And you're like, oh shit, we need to restore this china bowl. No, what have we done? And then you like piece it back together with this really poisonous glue and you put it back on the thing and it's like never going to be the same. It'll never hold what it held before, you know, and the glue that holds it together is poisonous. And that is a metaphor for, like, how we go about this on a cultural level, you know. It's, it's a weird world in, in, like, conservation. And I'm not, like, saying all, I'm not trying to poo-poo on all of it, you know. I'm really thankful that we have a lot of it because I don't really, I'm not too excited about the alternative. So then we get into, like, a lot of these narratives about some of these plants, particularly here in the Southwest. You know, we live in a pretty interesting area, especially in the Colorado River Basin. We're in the upper basin, you know, but being on this part of the Western Slope where we have like these adobe badlands that are very saline rich, so the very salty selenium rich soil over here in the adobes, um, our watersheds are kind of peculiar where we get, where we get to kind of see stuff that usually happens further downstream once you get into like Utah, Arizona on the Colorado River. But let's talk real quick about this story that has still influenced our perceptions of a couple plants. Russian olive and salt cedar, tamarisk. Um, both were planted for erosion control back in the day. Everybody was like, these plants are amazing. 
I love them, you know. They're like beautiful garden ornamental plant trees and then and then they like started, you know, doing their thing because we had already augmented a lot of the waterways in the west and soil salinization was starting to like make a difference in flood control, right? You know, kind of like altered the waterways of these rivers. So Russian olive and tamarisk were like, well, sweet, we don't need floods to germinate. This is like the shit, thanks. We'll grow here, we're, we're gonna have a great time. And so they kind of just like grow and they take over, you know, and the, the biotic community of these whole bioregions have really changed. And people are like, oh, those Russian olives and tamarisks, it's all their fault. But we did this. You know, we altered the waterways, we stopped the flooding, and we, by water augmentation, we salinated the water that was already very salty. Like, the Colorado River is a salty river to begin with. You know, and these, these plants can handle highly, like, very alkaline, highly salty soils that, like, a lot of other plants do. They uptake it, you know, and they actually can, like, create a uh, process of succession that eventually other plants that can't handle that much salinity in the soil can then come and handle but i'm sure everybody's heard this or some people have heard this that like russian olive and tamarix they suck up all the water and they evaporate it out in the air they stick their evil little tap roots down into the aquifers and groundwaters and they suck it all up and evaporate it out those, those phreatophytes that's what that's called it's a phreatophyte it's like a wetland tree that takes up more water Interesting thing about this story, that was never proven. And there's a funny story. I'll go as far to say as a conspiracy behind this one. Hear me out here. So Phelps Dodge Mining Company, they run, they own the Marinci Copper Mine. Has anybody ever heard of Marinci in Arizona, New Mexico? The biggest open pit copper mine I've ever seen. It's like you're looking across like a mile pit. It's huge. You know, it's like, it's tragic. So in the Southwest, Arizona particularly, that's like Copper Town. They have completely devastated that landscape for copper. And so Phelps Dodge got a lead and copper contract for World War II back in the late 1930s. And they got the mining claim, they got everything they needed, but they didn't have one very important ingredient that you need for mining. Water. And according to Western Water Law, if you can prove that somebody is misusing water that's not being put to some sort of good agricultural, economic, good American use, you can appropriate more water for your stuff. So they schemed, they conspired. This is a real conspiracy. I'm serious. They created a campaign of anti-friatophyte-ness, which is basically they were like Russian olive and salt cedar are stealing all of this water that could be put to better economic use. And that is like, I don't know how many of you actually know a lot about Western water law, but the basic tenet is, is use it or lose it. It's, it's, it's messed up. Like if you really wanna, if you wanna get really depressed, I really encourage you to study Western water law in the Colorado River Basin. <laughs> and then I can come, come give me a hug later and I can say, it's okay, it's okay. I'm figuring it out too. <laughs> I've been trying to farm here my whole life and it's stepped on my soul. but. Um, yeah, so Phelps Dodge created this campaign against these trees, these non-native trees that were growing here, and that's how they allocated a lot of water to go through with this mining contract to make that, make that big Skrilla for World War II. And then it stuck, and it never, and nobody ever thought to question it. And, and they were like, yeah, they steal all the water and evaporate out all this water. And there was all these claims made that, like, 
all of the Russian olive and salt cedar in like the Colorado River Basin evaporates more water every day than the city of LA uses in a day. And, and people are just like, yeah, damn those trees, you know? And nobody ever thought to test it, but they started doing tests with these like water tra evapotranspiration towers. And what they found multiple times was that Russian olive and salt cedar evaporate the same and less than cottonwoods and willows that are native here. But people still like don't know this. A lot of people don't know this. And then you add another curveball into this is that the western willow flycatcher, which is an endangered bird species, there's like, God, I want to say almost like less than a thousand pairs left altogether. You know, uh, tamarisk or salt cedar is their preferred nesting tree now. You know, so you've had this like incredible alteration to these whole ecologies that people are blaming on the plants, but they are anthropogenic. We did it. Like we, we actually totally shifted these whole biotic communities and terraformed these like riverscapes and river watersheds into completely different um, ecologies by, by our land use systems and land management preferences, you know? And so, yeah, a lot of that is still, you'll still see that today, that these are phreatophytes and they steal groundwater and they evaporate it off and they're horrible. But now you know where that comes from. So if you hear it, you can be like, yeah, as a matter of a fact. And I have sort resources for all of this too, if y'all want. Yeah, and so welcome to North America, the North American continent 2022, where we now have over 4,000 introduced species that have actually enriched our whole continental flora. You know, all of the introduced species on this continent literally make up 20% of our vascular plants. And you'll hear, who's heard like invasive species cause extinctions? Has anybody heard this? You ever heard this? Yeah, yeah. There's never been a single extinction on any continent caused by invasive plants. The only extinctions that have ever happened have been on Hawaii and other little Pacific islands, the little Atlantic islands and in lakes, very isolated island-like environments that have very delicate little ecosystems in them, and it's not plants that cause them. It's usually some sort of pathogen or some kind of predator that does that. And it's like, um, still to this day, if you ever hear people like, oh, invasive species cause extinctions, and you're like, well, I'd like to really hear about some proof of that because I haven't really seen it yet, you know, other than on Hawaii. And this is that thing, right, about overgeneralizations, like, couple people made these claims and then they were talking about Hawaii and then people just like threw it across the board, you know, like it happens everywhere. Ironically, like Hawaii is like the most species rich it's ever been in literally its whole geologic history because of introduced plants, you know, and there was some extinctions that happened on Hawaii from pathogens and stuff like, and I'm not denying the reality of like the weightiness of this stuff. Y'all, I'm like, I'm not just saying like, yeah, it's all great. I'm just saying like, it's a lot more complicated. I think I've struggled with, the only thing I know how to call it, I think you can give yourself cognitive dissonance when you go into a subject and look at the polar opposite viewpoints and try to understand them both. It's a really good way to give yourself a lot of anxiety about like what to think. And that's like how I've been walking with this like dance with invasive species talk, you know? Cause I like, in order to like really understand it, I went into all sides of it you know i really want to know like where like the people that are so passionate about eradicating invasive species are coming from and that there's a lot of complexity to it and i don't want to i don't want to undermine that also paradoxically in there there's it's like a lot of cultural subjectivity 
in there. It's like, what do we want, right? What do we value? And that's that whole, like, what is harm? Is harm change? Is change what, is, what is harm? But one of the biggest things, honestly, that has caused so much of these issues is disturbance. Disturbance. Disturbance is awesome. I'm just going to say real quick, I love disturbance. Disturbance is, like, probably one of the most important factors in any kind of ecosystem. Like, it literally is what creates these. It creates, it creates openings. It creates resource pools. And that's like why uh, there's there's this term called stochasticity, ecological stochasticity. It's where unpredictable random things happen, and disturbance is one of those things that like makes everything come back different, right? And that can be like floods, it can be fire, it can be all kinds of things. It can be uh, nutrient excesses that create population flushes that have this whole ripple effect on on the whole web so it's like three-dimensional you know like the food chain is not this vertical chain the food web is not this flat web it's a very complicated three-dimensional interpenetrated entanglement of all of these different relationships so disturbance regimes have been highly altered since european contact disturbance regimes were like indigenous burning right that's a disturbance regime disturbance regimes are flooding in our southwestern rivers that don't happen anymore. I was gonna say genetically engineered insects. Genetically engineered insects. It's genetically engineered trout that are being put into hatcheries and stocked in the rivers. Yeah, there's a lot, right? And so there's a lot of changes that have happened in disturbances, and a lot of people think that disturbance is what causes these like opportunities for invasions of plants or just like these opportunities. Because like I said, nature's an equal opportunity employer. You know, she ain't going to discriminate, like, whoever it's, like, first come, first serve comes to, like, the, the resource opening when it's there. And that can be native species, that can be introduced species. Disturbance regimes have been changed, like, in terms of, like, fires, floods. But then you have urban runoff. You have roads. You have a lot of things that create these, these uh, pools of excess in other places that have these effects on the places. You know, so when I was talking to Angela Moles in Australia... She was like, all of these introduced species, most of them that came to Australia, like if you were to try to plant them here in the sandy soil of Sydney, they would die. Like the native plants that have adapted to this part of Australia are rugged because the soil here sucks. It's windy. It's hot. But we've built this massive city where you have all this urban runoff coming off. And if you were to try to fertilize some of our native plants, they would just die. But all of these like introduced species are like, sweet, we'll take it. Thank you. You know, but then... You see how the plants get put on as the ones being responsible for that. But it's really we are creating niches. We are creating openings. We are creating resource excesses and opportunities for them in these places by what we're doing. And so, like, when it comes to these extinctions, I was just reading in this thing about how some of these extinctions, some scientists have been like, well, okay, so this introduced species or this predator helped facilitate the extinction of this other species and they were like the cherry on top but the bigger whole ice cream sundae below that cherry was actually human development and resource extraction and it was us it was habitat destruction that actually did more of the extincting than some of these other, than these like introduced species actually did you know and and i just think that that's like something good to consider that we're always trying to find a scapegoat but it's like we're not really taking responsibility for like how we culturally handle ourselves and have historically handled ourselves. It's like I said in our, my last talk, like landscapes reflect cultural values. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like cultural landscapes. This is like the cultural landscape of today. And another problem. So one of the problems with these studies that they have done, and they've done a lot, they've done a lot, but they don't replicate them, one. And two is that they substitute time for space. So time in science is really important. Time in ecology is very, very, very important because you need reference. That's like traditional ecological knowledge is a compendium of thousands of years of generational after generation observing and in interacting with their landscapes and passing that down in an oral history in one place or in a couple of places. That's traditional ecological knowledge. We don't have that. We have a very short period of time, but we have a lot of space. We have the opposite. And you can see how in terms of making scientific assertions that that can be problematic. We're substituting an important thing for another thing that's also important, but that things happen differently in different places. You know, just because it happened this way in like one place doesn't mean it's going to happen the same in another place. There's a lot of factors that influence that. So substituting time for space is another reason why we have a lot of these generalizations that people kind of just run with and don't think to actually ever question because we haven't actually duplicated most of these studies and that we'll have like a thing that we see here and we're like, oh, this is happening here. And we kind of see a similar thing happening here and here and here. I guess it's logical to conclude that this next three things is going to happen because we've seen it happening in a similar trend in all of these different places. But it doesn't always happen like that. It can be correct, but you don't know. So just don't go saying it like you do know. That's all I'm saying. Like it's okay to like theorize on it and experiment, but to act like that it is this like objective truth. I think that's just what pisses me off. This like mainstream kind of academic thing is that there's just like some like there's some hubris and there's some big ego in here. And man, like I'm telling you, people's like whole academic like uh, their 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 salaries and their whole like study budgets depend on them sticking to their guns on a lot of these things. There's big money because academia has got to get money from somewhere to do these big studies, these big things. And, um, and so, yeah, then there's like this old theory that a lot of people are seeing like it's actually not true is that an invasive species will come in and then it'll kick out a native because there's this niche and that there's like a limited number of niches. There's like a limited number of pies in this, nice pie pieces of pie in this pie in nature man there's there's pie all over the place you know there's like actually a lot more pie and that these niches are open-ended you know and that there's not this like finite number of niches and that's actually something that people are realizing is like oh one species coming in doesn't actually just kick another species out of a niche it creates another niche and it creates all these other relationships and you've heard of that concept like ecological services like there's relationships that like some of these plants that are introduced that aren't like super specialized end up oftentimes performing like 10 times more different kind of like ecological services and relationships with other species than some of these really specialized native plants do. And I'm not saying I, li I, like, I like all plants. I'm just saying, just saying. Thanks for listening. If these topics resonate with you, consider joining us this coming summer for one of our programs for all ages focused on ecological literacy, ethnobotany, and building your personal relationship to the ecologies you are a part of. The programs range from a weekend to a full week in length, and you can find more information at layinggroundwork.org. This episode was produced by Jeff Wagner, 
and edited by me, Riley Lopez. Our introduction music is by the Sim Redmond Band. Many special thanks to Gabe Crawford, Rampai Noikau, Gregory Pettis, and the many teachers on plants and seeds who helped bring this knowledge together. You can learn more about our work at layinggroundwork.org.